Hello, and thank you for tuning into the New England Journal, hosted by yours truly, David Michael Loveland Jr. That's me, also known as Mr. 603 of the beautiful Granite State, more formally known as New Hampshire. This podcast is where we talk about all things New England. To start off our pilot episode, we're going to be reading from your favorite New England recipes book. Today's recipe is Boston Brown Bread. You'll need one cup of yellow cornmeal, one cup of rye flour, one cup of graham flour, one teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon of baking soda, three quarter cup of molasses, two cups sour milk, one cup of raisins. Step one, mix and sift cornmeal, flours, and salt. Step two, dissolve baking soda in small amount of water and stir into the molasses. Combine molasses with sour milk, then mix into dry ingredients. Step three, shake raisins in a paper bag with a little flour in it and add to batter. Mix thoroughly. Step four, coat two round molds with a vegetable spray. Old baking powder cans used to be the standard molds. Molds should have tight fitting covers and covers need to be greased or coated with vegetable spray before use. Step five, fill the molds with batter. Place covers on the molds, then tie covers down with string so the bread will not force off cover as it rises. Step six, place molds on a rack and a kettle containing boiling water that comes halfway up around the molds. Cover the kettle, steam three hours, adding more boiling water if needed. Step seven, unmold. The traditional way to slice brown bread is to use a length of taut string. This recipe should yield two small loaves. For this week's book review, we're highlighting um, a famous uh, classical African-American novel written by Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Were Watching God. One of the most important works of 20th century American literature, Zora Neale Hurston's beloved 1937 classic, Their Eyes Were Watching God, is an enduring Southern love story, sparkling with wit, beauty, and heartfelt wisdom. Told in the captivating voice of a woman who refuses to live in sorrow, bitterness, fear, or foolish romantic dreams, is the story of fair-skinned, fiercely independent, Janie Crawford and her evolving selfhood throughout three marriages and a life marked by poverty, trials, and purpose. A true literary wonder, Hurston's masterwork remains as relevant and affecting today as when it was first published. Perhaps this novel is the most widely read and highly regarded book in the entire canon of African American literature. On this episode, we'll be reading the poem, New Hampshire, from the collection of Robert Frost. New Hampshire, I met a lady from the South who said, you won't believe she said it, but she said it. None of my family ever worked or had a thing to sell. I don't suppose the work much matters. You may work for all of me. I've seen the time I've had to work myself, the having 
anything to sell is what is the disgrace in man or state or nation. I met a traveler from Arkansas who boasted of his state as beautiful for diamonds and apples. Diamonds and apples in commercial quantities, I asked him, on my guard. Oh yes, he answered, off his. The time was evening in the Pullman. I see the porters made your bed, I told him. I met a Californian who would talk California, a state so blessed. He said, in climate, none have ever died there. A natural death and vigilance committees had to organize to stock the graveyards and vindicate the state's humanity. Just the way Stephenson runs it, I murmured. About the British Arctic, that's what comes of being in the market with a climate. I met a poet from another state, a zealot full of fluid inspiration, who in the name of fluid inspiration, but in the best style of bad salesmanship, angrily tried to make me write a protest, in verse, I think, against the Volstead Act. He didn't even offer me a drink until I asked for one to steady him. This is called having an idea to sell. It never could have happened in New Hampshire. The only person really soiled with trade I ever stumbled on in old New Hampshire was someone who had just come back ashamed from selling things in California. He'd built a noble mansard roof with balls on turrets like Constantinople, deep in woods some 10 miles from a railroad station, as if to put forever out of mind the hope of being, as we say, received. I found him standing at the close of day inside the threshold of his open barn, like a long actor on a gloomy stage, and recognized him through the iron gray in which his face was muffled to the eyes, as an old boyhood friend, and once indeed, a drover with me on the road to Brighton. His farm was grounds and not a farm at all. His house, among the local sheds and shanties, rose like a factor's at a trading station, and he was rich, and I was still a rascal. I couldn't keep from asking, impolitely, where had he been, and what had he been doing? How did he get so? Rich was understood. In dealing in old rags in San Francisco, oh, it was terrible as well could be. We both of us turned over in our graves, just specimens as all New Hampshire has, one each of everything as in a showcase, which naturally she doesn't care to sell. She had one president, pronounce him purse, and make the most of it for better or worse. Here's your one chance to score against the state. She had one Daniel Webster. He was all the Daniel Webster ever was or shall be. She had the Dartmouth needed to produce him. I call her old. She has one family whose claim is good to be settled here before the era of colonization and before that of exploration events. John Smith remarked them as he coasted by, dangling their legs and fishing off a wharf. At the Isle of Shoals and satisfied himself, they weren't red Indians, but veritable pre-primitives of the white race, dawn people, like those who furnished Adam's sons with wives. However uninnocent they may have been in being there so early in our history, They'd been there a hundred years or more. Pity he didn't ask what they were up to. At that date, with a wharf already built, in to take their name. They've since told me their name, today an honored one in Nottingham. As for what they were up to more than fishing, suppose they weren't behaving puritanly. 
The hour had not yet struck for being good. Mankind had not yet gone on with the sabbatical. It became an explorer of the deep, not to explore too deep in others' business. Did you but know of him, New Hampshire has one real reformer who would change the world so it would be accepted by two classes. Artists the minute they set up as artists, before that is, they are themselves accepted. And boys, the minute they get out of college, I can't help thinking those are tests to go by. And she has one I don't know what to call him, who comes from Philadelphia, every year with a great flock of chickens of rare breed. He wants to give the educational advantage of growing almost wild, under the watchful eye of hawk and eagle. Dorkings, because they're spoken of by Chaucer. Sussex, because they're spoken of by Herrick. She has a touch of gold, New Hampshire gold. You may have heard of it. I had a farm offered me long, not long since up Berlin Way with a mine on it that was worked for gold, but not gold in commercial quantities, just enough gold to make the engagement rings and marriage rings of those who own the farm. What gold more innocent could one have asked for? One of my children, ringing after rocks, lately brought home from Andover or Canaan, a specimen of beryl with a trace of radium. I know with radium, the trace would have to be the merest trace to be below the threshold of commercial, but trust New Hampshire not to have enough of radium or anything to sell. A specimen of everything, I said. She has one witch, old style. She lives in Colebrook. The only other witch I ever met was lately at a cut glass dinner in Boston. There were four candles and four people present. The witch was young and beautiful, new style, and open-minded. She was free to question her gift for reading letters locked in boxes. Her gift was for reading uh, much greater when the boxes were metal than it was when they were wooden. It made the world seem so mysterious. The Society for Physical Research was cognizant. Her husband was worth millions. I think he owned some shares in Harvard College. New Hampshire used to have at Salem a company we called the White Corpuscles, whose duty was at any hour of night to rush in sheets in full caps where they smelled a thing the least bit doubtfully presented and give someone the Skipper Irison's ride. One each of everything, as in a showcase. More than enough land for a specimen. You'll say she has, but there enters in something else to protect her from herself. Their quality makes up for quantity. Not even New Hampshire farms are much for sale. The farm I made my home on in the mountains, I had to take by force rather than buy. I caught the owner outdoors by himself raking up after winter, and I said, I'm going to put you off of this farm. I want it. Where are you going to put me? In the road? I'm going to put you on the farm next to it. Why won't the farm next to it do for you? I like this better. It was really better. Apples? New Hampshire has them, but unspayed, with no suspicion in stem end or blossom end, a vitriol or arsenate of lead. And so not good for anything but cider. Her unpruned grapes are flung like lariats, far up the birches, out of man's reach. A state producing precious metal, stones, and writing, 
none of these except perhaps the precious literature and quantity or quality to worry the producer about disposing of it. Do you know, considering the market, there are more poems produced than any other thing? No wonder poets sometimes have to seem so much more businesslike than businessmen. Their wares are so much harder to get rid of. She's one of the two best states in the Union, Vermont's the other, and the two have been York fellows in the sap yoke, form of old and many marches, and they lie like wedges, thick end to thin end and thin end to thick end, and are a figure of the way the strong, of mind and strong of arm, should fit together, one thick, where one is thin, and vice versa. New Hampshire raises the Connecticut and a trout hatchery near Canada, but soon divides the river with Vermont. Both are delightful states for their absurdly small towns, Lost Nation, Bungie, Muddy Boo, Poplin, Still Corners, so-called not because the place is still silent all day long, nor yet because it boasts a whiskey still, because it sets out once to be a city and still is only corners, crossroads, and a wood. And I remember one whose name appeared between the pictures on a movie screen, election night, once in Franconia, when everything had gone Republican and Democrats were sore in need of comfort. Easton goes Democrat, Wilson four, Hughes two, and everybody to the saddest laugh, the loud laugh, the big laugh at the little New York five million laughs at Manchester, Manchester 60 or 70,000 laughs at Littleton, 4,000. Littleton laughs at Franconia, 700. And Franconia laughs, I fear, did I laugh that night at Easton? What has Easton laughed to laugh at? And like the actress exclaim, oh my God, at. There's Bungie, and for Bungie, there are towns, whole townships named, but without population. Anything I can say about New Hampshire will serve almost as well about Vermont, excepting that they differ in their mountains. The Vermont mountains stretch extended straight. New Hampshire mountains curl up in a coil. I had been coming to New Hampshire mountains, and here I am, and what am I to say? Here, my first theme becomes embarrassing. Emerson said, the God who made New Hampshire taunted the lofty land with little men. Another Massachusetts poet said, I go no more to summer in New Hampshire. I've given up my summer place in Dublin. But when I asked how to know what ailed New Hampshire, she said she couldn't stand the people in it. The little men, it's Massachusetts speaking here. And when I asked to know what ailed the people, she said, go read your own books and find out. I may as well confess myself the author of several books against the world in general, to take them as against a special state or even nations to restrict my meaning. I'm what is called a sensibilist or otherwise an environmentalist. I refuse to adapt myself a mite to any change from hot to cold, from wet to dry, from poor to rich, or back again. I make a virtue of my suffering from nearly everything that goes on around me. In other words, I know wherever I am, being the creature of literature I am, I shall not lack for pain to keep me awake. Kit Marlowe taught me how to say my prayers. Why, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Samoa, Russia, Ireland I complain of, no less than England, France, and Italy. Because I wrote my novels in New Hampshire is no proof that I end them at New Hampshire. When I left Massachusetts years ago, 
between two days, the reason why I sought New Hampshire, not Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, or Vermont was this. Where I was living then, New Hampshire offered the nearest boundary to escape across. I had an illusion in my handbag about the people being better there than those I left behind. I, I thought they weren't. I thought they couldn't be. And yet, they were. I'd sure had no such friends in Massachusetts. As Hall of Wyndham, Gay of Atkinson, Bartlett of Raymond, now of Colorado, Harris of Derry, and Lynch of Bethlehem. The glorious bards of Massachusetts seemed to want to make New Hampshire people over. They taunt the lofty land with little men. I don't know what to say about the people. For art's sake, one could almost wish them worse rather than better. How are we to write the Russian novel in America as long as life goes so unterribly? There is the pinch form, which our only outcry in literature to date is heard to come. We get what little misery we can out of not having cause for misery. It makes the guild of novel writers sick to be expected to the Dostoevskivis on nothing worse than too much luck and comfort. This is not sorrow, though it's just the vapors, and recognized as such in Russia itself under the new regime and so forbidden. If well it is with Russia, then feel free to say so or be stood against the wall and shot. It's Pollyanna, now or death. This then and the new freedom we here tell of, and very sensible. No state can build a literature that shall at once be sound and sad on a foundation of well-being. To show the level of intelligence among us, it was just a Warren farmer whose horse had pulled him short up in the road by me, a stranger, this is what he said, from nothing but embarrassment and want of anything more sociable to say. You hear those hound dogs sing on Musalok? Well, they reminded me of the hue and cry we've heard against the mid-Victorians and never rightly understood till Brian retired from politics and joined the chorus. The matter with mid-Victorians seemed to have been a man named John L. Darwin. Go long, I said to him he to his horse. I knew a man who's failing as a farmer, burned down his farmhouse for the fire insurance, and spent the proceeds on a telescope to satisfy a lifelong curiosity about our place among the infinities. And how was that for other worldliness? If I must choose which I would elevate the people or the already lofty mountains, I'd elevate the already lofty mountains the only fault I find with old New Hampshire is that her mountains aren't quite high enough. I was not always so, I have come to be so. How to my sorrow have I attained a height from which to look down critical on mountains? What has given me assurance to say what height becomes New Hampshire mountains or any mountains? Can it be some strength or feel as of an earthquake in my back to heave them higher to the morning star? Can it be foreign travel in the Alps, where having seen and credited a moment the solid moldings of vast peaks of cloud behind the pitiful reality of Lincoln, Lafayette, and Liberty? Or some such sense says how high shall jet the fountain in proportion to the basin? No, none of these has raised me to my throne of intellectual dissatisfaction. But the sad accident of having seen our actual mountains given in a map for early times as twice the height they are, 10,000 feet 
instead of only five, which shows how sad an accident may be. 5,000 is no longer high enough. Where areas I never had a good idea about improving people and the world, here I am over fertile and suggestion and cannot rest from planning day or night how high I'd thrust the peaks in summer snow to tap the upper sky and draw a flow of frosty night air on the veil below down from the stars to free the dew as starry. The more sensibilist I am, the more I seem to want mountains wild. The way the wiry gang boss liked the log jam. After he had picked the lock and got it started, he dodged a log that lifted like an arm against the sky to break his back for him, then came in dancing, skipping with his life across the roaring chaos and the words we saw him say along the zigzag journey were doubtless as the words we heard him say on the coming nearer. Wasn't she an ideal? Son of a bitch? You bet she wasn't ideal. For all her mountains fall a little short, her people not quite short enough for art. She's still New Hampshire, a most restful state. Lately in converse with a New York Alec about the new school of the pseudo phallic, I found myself in a close corner where I had to make an almost funny choice. Choose you which you will be a prude or puke, mewling and puking in the public arms. Me for the hills where I don't have to choose. But if you had to choose, which would you be? I wouldn't be a prude, afraid of nature. I know a man who took a double axe and went along against a grove of trees. But his heart failing him, he dropped the axe and ran for shelter, quoting Matthew Arnold. Nature is cruel. Man is sick of blood. There's been enough shed without shedding mine. Remember Burnham Wood, the woods in flux. He had a special terror of the flux that showed itself in dendrophobia. The only decent tree had been to mill and educated into boards, he said. He knew too well for any earthly use the line where man leaves off and nature starts and never overstepped it to save in dreams. He stood on the safe side of the line talking, which is sheer Matthew Arnoldism, the cult of one who owned himself, a foiled circuitous wanderer, and took dejectedly his seat upon the intellectual throne. Agreed and frowning on these improvised altars, the woods are full of nowadays, against as in the days when Ahas sinned by worship under green trees in the open, scarcely a mile that I come on one. A black cheek stone and stick of rain-washed charcoal, even to say the gross were God's first temples, come to near Ahaz's sin for safety. Nothing not built with hands, of course, is sacred. But here is not a question of what's sacred, rather of what to face or run away from. I'd hate to be a runaway from nature, and neither would I choose to be a puke who cares not what he does in company and where he can't do anything, falls back on words and tries his worst to make words speak louder than actions and sometimes achieves it. It seems a narrow choice the age insists on. How about being a good Greek, for instance? That course, they tell me, isn't offered this year. Come, but this isn't choosing, puke or prude. Well, if I had to choose one or the other, I choose to be a plain New Hampshire farmer with an income in cash of, say, a thousand from, say, a publisher in New York City. It's restful to arrive at a decision and restful 
just to think about New Hampshire. At present, I am living in Vermont. That poem was from the collection of Robert Frost, titled New Hampshire. Next on our podcast, we're going to be reading from the Encyclopedia of New England. Agriculture in the pre-colonial and colonial eras. Despite the existence of such important cities as Boston, Salem, Newport, and Portsmouth, New England's economy and society between 1620 and 1775 were essentially rural, rooted in agriculture. Agriculture was one of the earliest points of contact between English settlers and Native Americans. It gave the colonies a source of capital, which to develop an economic system in their new home. Not only farmers, but magistrates, merchants, ministers, soldiers, artisans, lumbermen, and fishermen engaged directly or indirectly in agriculture. Agriculture gave women the means with which to participate in production, manufacture, and marketing of goods. As settlers pushed the frontiers farther inland from the coast, they depended on agriculture to support their efforts. Discussions of New England agriculture usually begin with Plymouth plantations, first meager grain crops. Colonists did not introduce farming to New England, however, for centuries, except for those living most northeasterly, the Algonquin tribes of New England had derived up to half their livings from farming. Using extensive, long-follow agriculture, the tribes raised beans, squash, pumpkins, and most important, maize which the English called Indian corn. Though crop combinations in the use of alewives as fertilizer helped maintain soil productivity, the planting grounds eventually ran out and new ones had to be cleared. Native American land clearing methods included the use of fire. In addition to providing planting grounds, burned areas grew up to grass that attracted deer, thereby facilitating the hunt. Furthermore, Strawberries, raspberries, and other wild fruits thrived on the burned islands and along with wild nuts provided an important segment of the annual diet. Although the native inhabitants of New England farmed, their independence on hunting, fishing, and gathering, it required mobility and therein lay the most critical difference between their use of the land and sedentary farming of the English colonists. The colonists too employed extensive long-follow agriculture and they integrated Native American crops, cultivation practices, and land clearing methods with their own. Although plows and harrows were still scarce, early colonial farmers were able to rely on hoe husbandry because they settled on land previously cultivated by Indians. More than 60 towns settled before 1650 were established where Native Americans had either cleared the undergrowth or planted crops. The settlers were determined to replace the agriculture they knew in England and imported plows and oxen as rapidly as possible. The introduction of foreign livestock and English farming methods created great hardships for the Indians. In fact, problems caused by English livestock contributed to the outbreak of King Philip's War in the year 1675. Colonial governments used the English agricultural concept of improvement as a rational for appropriating lands from the Native Americans and allotting it to settlers. Improvement included building houses, barns, and fences, 
manuring, plowing, planting, and mowing the land, and using the land to pasture livestock. Under English law, Indians had clear legal claim to their planting grounds. Colonial magistrates allotted unoccupied land to settlers according to their ability to improve it. Although many early um, town proprietors expected inhabitants to live on home lots clustered close to the community's church and plant their fields on great lots located outside of the town, many families moved to their large parcels and set up farmsteads. Towns remained common land for, for pasture, wood, stone, and other natural resources to be made available to all the inhabitants. Planting and hanging fields were fenced against the intrusion by grazing livestock, which farmers turned loose to forage freely. Undivided land in unsettled areas of southeastern New England usually became privately owned by 1690, but northern and western areas took longer to settle. Between 1725 and 1760, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Hampshire sold the whole townships in Maine and Vermont to land speculators. However, the northern frontier remained sparsely settled until the end of the French and Indian War in the year 1763. Farmers typically owned anywhere from 30 to 250 acres, but the percentage used for agriculture varied according to the quantity and type of land, as well as the farmer's resources. Estate inventories from the 1640s, which do not include pasture, suggest that even though they probably own more, ordinary farming families managed between 10 and 40 acres of arable and mowing land. By the year 1750, Farms in the hinterlands generally range from 50 to 200 acres, including pasturage with a few exceptions such as the Naransocket region and portions of New Hampshire and Maine where private landholders still had held vast farming estates. Farms in the older towns tended to be smaller. Although families converted more acreage to cropland and pastures, the original farms decreased in size as families divided their land among succeeding generations. Men were primarily responsible for livestock management, for clearing and plowing, and for sowing, cultivating, and harvesting field crops. Women were generally responsible for the home and gardens and orchards and for the barnyard animals. Dairying was among the first colonial market ventures and it was women who manufactured butter and cheese. Women participated in other types of agricultural production, manufacturing, and marketing as well. Some went door to door selling their cider, beer, spun wool, and linen, vegetables, and fruit products. Although women were often shrewd traders, they usually lacked the literacy and accounting skills to operate independently beyond local exchange markets. Nonetheless, women played vital through scarcely recorded roles in New England's colonial agricultural economy. Agricultural production was diverse. Many farmers fished, trapped furs, and timberland because the seasonal nature of each occupation allowed them to work productively at different times of the year. The landless found seasonal work on farms, while gentlemen farmers, which included governors, selectmen, judges, attorneys, and ministers, leased out their land and livestock to tenants. Merchants took country pay in the form of livestock or farm products or traded merchandise for labor on their own farms. 
farming households were linked to one another and to the towns by cultivated fields, trails, and roads. Neighboring farm families had systems of reciprocity that allowed them to exchange labor, equipment, and livestock, crops, and manufactured goods. Family members did most of the work on farms, supplemented, in some instances, by the indentured workers, slaves, or seasonal, seasonal wage laborers. Some families produced only enough for themselves in local or regional barter. Others produced surpluses that found markets outside of New England. The linchpin of colonial New England's agricultural economy and one of the region's earliest industries was grazing livestock, the most useful of which were cattle. Oxen was the preferred beast of burden for all farming, freight, and logging operations. Horses were used for riding and for carrying small loads. Clearing land and raising crops were labor-intensive, but the abundant meadows and marshes along the coastline and inland rivers provided immediate pasture and hay. English grasses and clover spread rapidly and by the beginning of the 18th century were the preferred sources of hay. Some sheep, dairy, working oxen, and breeding bulls were placed under the watch of keepers and herded on town commons. Other cattle, along with hogs, goats, and horses, were branded or earmarked and turned loose to fend for themselves. Although field and orchard crops did not prove as profitable as livestock production, harvests often yielded surpluses for the market. The English grains included barley, oats, rye, and wheat, and common field crops included flax, tobacco, and peas. Wheat yields were hampered by depleted soils and by the wheat blast, identified today as the black stem rust, that struck in the year of the 1670s. The most important grain crop was Indian corn, or maize. It became New England's staple grain, feeding both the settlers and their animals. Like wheat and cattle, it was legal tender in all the colonies. Fruit trees did not require cleared land for planting, and orchards therefore became a regular feature of New England's landscape. Apples in particular did well, and by the 18th century, cider had replaced beer as the mainstay farm beverage. Other field and garden crops included cabbage, carrots, onions, parsnips, turnips, and a variety of herbs for culinary and medicinal uses. By the second decade of the 18th century, horticultural imports and exports and domestic nursery and seed industries were prosperous undertakings for some families. Regions that produced surplus of livestock or crops for internal markets were usually flanked by centers that processed the animals or plants. For example, Lynn Mass, famous for its shoe industry, had plentiful supply of hides from the cattle herds in the nearby Merrimack River Valley, as well as southern New Hampshire and Maine. The rich pastures of Naransocket Bay supported herds of dairy cattle in Rhode Island became famous throughout the Atlantic colonies for its cheese. The Connecticut River Valley between northern Massachusetts and th southern Connecticut was New England's breadbasket. Producing abundant wheat, corn, and other grains, farmers also raised market crops of potatoes, onions, tobacco, flax, and hay on the valley's fertile alluvial soil. Regions near seaports such as Boston, New London, Connecticut, Salem, Massachusetts, and Providence raised cattle and hogs for salt beef and pork along with grains used to make bread for ship provisioning. Farm produce became part of the triangular Atlantic trade network. 
New England ships left with diverse cargoes of potatoes, cabbage, grain, flax, corn, apples, and other fruits, horses, cattle, sheep, hogs, geese, ducks, turnkeys, and hens. Processed or manufactured agricultural goods included wool, cider, eggs, barreled beef and pork, leather, shoes, flour, bread, tallow, beeswax, soap, candles, and cheese, butter, and flaxseed. These goods were traded with Virginia and Maryland, the Carolinas, the West Indies, the Wine Islands, Southern Europe, and of course, England. Horses were in such demand for the West Indies sugar industries that the state of Massachusetts and Connecticut passed legislation to protect their breeding stock and to curtail the shipment of stolen animals, but Rhode Island sold its Narragansett Pacers to extinction. Land management ha habits varied among families and communities. Most farmers concentrated their efforts on clearing, tiling, and fencing. Hay meadows were often left on their own to regenerate year after year. Farmers manured some fields with dung, lime, marl, gypsum, called land plaster or plaster of Paris, ashes, seaweed, seashells, and various types of barnyard and household wastes. They also rotated grain, corn, and grass crops. With land ready and available and labor and manure in short supply, however, many farmers tended to clear new plots for planting rather than improve old plots. By the mid-1700s, soils, some heavily farmed areas of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island showed signs of exhaustion. Colonial agriculture was not as backward and efficient as period reformers sometimes claimed. Colonists were seeding pastures and hay fields with clover and English grasses as early as the 1640s and possibly even earlier. Nurseries and seed companies made countless fruits, nuts, garden vegetables, and herbs available for home and market production as early as 1719. Contemporary records indicate that by the year 1750, gentlemen farmers were shifting to intensive farming and increasing the productivity of their farms by means of improved tools, more fertilizing, and better livestock breeding practices. Yaoman farmers often imitated their more prosperous neighbors and gradually the idea spread. Regardless of how conservative farmers were, they wanted their efforts to yield a surplus. During the second half of the 18th century, agriculture became more commercialized and specialized, particularly in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Changing and expanding markets affected farm labor and farm people. With the increased population in the older settlements and cities, some people migrated west. Some left the farm for employment in artisan shops, warehouses, docks, stores, and garrets. With the growth of urban populations, farmers found local markets for their goods. Nevertheless, even though New England had begun the shift from an agrarian to commercial economy, rural life and agricultural interests were never far from city and town dwellers in the colonial and revolutionary periods. That concludes agriculture in the pre-colonial and colonial era from the Encyclopedia of New England. We now transition to the last part 
of this podcast, where we will discuss from a Patriot's history of the United States, from Columbus's great discovery to America's Age of Enlightenment, America's history. Chapter one, the city on a hill, 1492 through 1707, the age of European discovery. God, glory, and gold, not necessarily in that order, took post-Renaissance Europeans to parts of the globe that they had never been before nor seen. The opportunity to gain materially will bring the gospel the non-Christians offered powerful incentives to explorers from Portugal, Spain, England, and France to embark on dangerous voyages of discovery in the 1400s. Certainly, they were not the first to sail to the Western Hemisphere, nor sailors reached the Ericsson's establishment of a colony in Vinland, somewhere on the northern Canadian coast. Whatever the fate of Vinland, its historical impact was minimal. And significant voyages of discovery did not occur more than 500 years when trade with the Orient beckoned. Marco Polo and other travelers to Cathay, China, had brought fantastic tales of wealth in the East and returned with unusual spices, dyes, rugs, silks, and other goods. But this was difficult, a long journey. Land roads crossed dangerous ter uh, territories, including imposing mountains and vast deserts of modern-day Afghanistan, northern India, Iran, and Iraq, and required expensive and well-protected caravans to reach Europe from Asia. Merchants encountered bandits who threatened transportation lanes, kings, and potentates who demanded tribute, and bloodthirsty killers who pillaged for pleasure. Trade routes from Bombay and Goa reached Europe via Persia or Arabia, crossing the Ottoman Empire with its internal taxes. Cargo had to be unloaded at seaports, then reloaded at Alexandria or Antioch for water transport across the Mediterranean, or continued on land before crossing the Dardanelles Strait into modern-day Bulgaria to the Danube River. European demand for such goods seemed endless, enticing merchants and their investors to engage in a relentless search for lower costs brought by safer, cheaper routes. Gradually, Europeans concluded that more direct water routes to the Far East must exist. The search for China's treasure coincided with three factors that made long ocean voyages possible. First, Sailing and shipbuilding technology had advanced rapidly after the 19th century, excuse me, after the 9th century, thanks in part to the Arab development of the astrolabe, a device with a pivoted limb that established the sun's altitude above the horizon. By the late 10th century, astrolabe technology had made its way to Spain, but was useful only in conjunction with new clock technology. For farther north, Vikings pioneered new methods of hull construction, among them the use of overlapping planks for internal support that enabled vessels to withstand violent ocean storms. Sailors of the Hanseatic League, states on the Baltic coast, experimented with larger ship designs and incorporated stern post rudders for better control. Yet improved ships alone were not enough. Explorers needed the accurate maps generated by Italian seamen and sparked by the new inquisitive impulse of the Renaissance. Thus, 
a wide range of technologies coalesced to encourage long-range voyages of discovery. Political changes, a second factor giving birth to the Age of Discovery, resulted from the efforts of several ambitious European monarchs to consolidate their possessions into larger, cohesive, dynastic states. This unification of lands, which increased the taxable base within the kingdoms, greatly increased the fundings available to expeditions and provided better military protection in the form of warships, at no cost, at no cost to investors. By the time a combined Venetian Spanish fleet defeated a much larger Ottoman force at Lepanto in 1571, the vessels of Christian nations could essentially sail with impunity anywhere in the Mediterranean. Then, in control of the Mediterranean, Europeans could consider the voyages of much longer duration and cost than they ever had in the past. A new generation of explorers found that monarchs could support even more expensive undertakings that integrated the monarch's interests with the merchant's interest. Third, the Protestant Reformation of the year 1517 fostered a fierce and bloody competition for power and territory between Catholic and Protestant nations that reinforced national concerns. England competed for land with Spain, not merely for economic and political reasons, but because the English feared the possibility that Spain might Catholicize numbers of non-Christians in new lands, where areas Catholics trembled at the thought of subjecting natives to Protestant heresies. Therefore, when economic or political gains for discovery and colonization may have been marginal, the monarchs had strong religious incentives to open their royal treasuries to support such missions. Here is the timeline. Between 1492 and 1504, Columbus's four voyages. Between 1519 and 1521, Cortes conquers Mexico. Between 1585 and 87, Roanoke Island colony fails. 1607, Jamestown, Virginia is founded. 1619, first Africans arrive in Virginia. 1619, Virginia House of Burgess is formed. 1620, Pilgrims from Plymouth, Massachusetts. 1630, Puritan migration to Massachusetts. 1634, Calverts found Maryland. 1636 through 38, Pequot Indian War in Massachusetts. 1638, Anne Hutchinson convicted of heresy. 1639, Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. 1642 through 48, English Civil War. 1651, First Navigation Act, Merchantalism. 1664, English conquered Netherlands, New York. 1675 to 76, King Philip's Metacomets War in Massachusetts. 1676, Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. 1682, Pennsylvania is settled. 1688 through 89, English Glorious Revolution in Bill of Rights. 1691, Massachusetts becomes royal colony. 1692, the Salem witch hunts begin. This was an excerpt from A Patriot's History of the United States, from Chapter 1, The City on a Hill, year 1492 through 1707, The Age of European Discovery. 
before we conclude this pilot episode of the Yankee Journal, we want to give a word to our sponsors, David Michael Loveland Jr. with Keeler Family Realtors. The firm has been serving the great state of New Hampshire for over 45 years with experience, service, integrity. To learn more information on buying or selling real estate, or if you're looking for real estate professionals that strictly specialize in antique and historic properties and farms, please call or text 603-520-7924 or call the office line at 603-225-3353, extension 303, or please visit us at 567 Pembroke Street, Pembroke, New Hampshire. Thank you all for tuning in to this pilot episode of the Yankee Journal, hosted by yours truly, David Michael Loveland Jr. Until next time.